Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Meraki Unboxed podcast. My name is Tanner, and I am your host for this episode. And today, we have two guests on today. We have Brennan and Brock. And we like to talk a lot about uh, features coming up here on the Meraki Unboxed podcast, but we're switching it up a little bit, and we're actually going to talk about features and a new device that is coming out. So let's start with some introductions here. Uh, Brennan, I'm going to start with you. Hey, Tanner. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, Brennan here. I am a technical marketing engineer, and I work with the Meraki switching product team in particular. Super excited to be here today talking to you guys about some new switches we're bringing to the market. Fantastic. And then we're also joined by Brock. Brock, go ahead and give your give uh, the listeners a little introduction. Thanks, Tanner. Uh, Brock Richards from Nutrien. I'm a senior solution architect. I've been with Nutrien for uh, close to 10 years now, and I'm responsible for uh, networks, uh, global network uh, architecture. Fantastic. Happy to have you both today. So, gentlemen, we are going to be talking about the new device that the MS team is releasing, the MS-130 and 130R. So, uh, Brennan, why don't you go ahead and give us a little introduction as to what the 130 and the 130R are? Yeah, thanks, Tanner. So, the 130 is a refresh of our Meraki 130 switch. Um, and this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Now, first, it's going to be um, a cost-effective multi-gig addition to our switching portfolio. So until recently, we had uh, multi-gigabit switches in the 300 series, but this is the first time we've had a non-stackable layer 2 switch with multi-gigabit uh, as, as well. So that's exciting. And uh, we've had lots of customers asking for you know multi-gig and that cost-effective uh, switch for a while. What's maybe maybe more interesting to uh, somebody like me in particular is the MS-130R, which is Meraki's first cloud-managed ruggedized switch. And what exactly is, what does ruggedized mean in this case? Oh man, that's, that's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> we'd like to talk about it in terms of um, hot, cold, and tight spaces. That's really maybe the best way to do it. We've had customers over the years, and and I think Brock maybe will tell us about this, um, who have taken our switches and adapted them for less conventional uses, maybe, um, you know, use them maybe outdoors or in places where um, you wouldn't typically, you know, picture when you're thinking about um, um, enterprise, you know, data centers, for instance, or, or you know, carpeted offices mm -hmm. um, or, or data closets. And, you know, as we keep hearing about IoT these days, there are more maybe use cases today that aren't like that, that are outdoors um, or in dirty places. And so we've had a lot of ask for that. So rugged here really is about um, hot use cases, cold places, and, and those tight spaces that uh, sometimes you need to, you know, jam an Ethernet cable into. Yeah, I think that's something a lot of people forget is that when you when you think of a network, you primarily think of a an office building. You know, you have your office building, you connect to the internet or your home. Um, but bringing in networks in less than optimal conditions, 
Um, we, you actually need something that can actually handle that environment. And there are some network devices that just don't do well in those environments. So definitely excited to see the fact that Meraki is moving into a ruggedized platform. And so it's my understanding that you're also bringing in some new features and that the MS-130 can support adaptive policy. Is that correct? Yeah, so adaptive policy is something that we've had um, as a feature for a little while um, on the higher ends, which is in particular the MS-390. Mm -hmm. It's really important that we continue to bring that feature set out to just about everywhere that you have a network device, right, passing traffic. And so um, the MS390 has done that job admirably, but like multi-gigabit, it's adaptive policy is something that customers have been asking for in a more cost-effective switch. So um, we're not quite ready to support it on day one. So uh, at, at FCS, when the MS130 ships, it will not be available on the switch. But we are excited that this is going to be, um, well, this is the first switch since the MS390 that has the hardware capabilities built into the switch. Uh, so that we can, you know, now start working on the software to enable adaptive policies as soon as possible, really, um, to allow customers to take advantage of um, adaptive policy, which is based on Cisco's TrustSec architecture, um, at really any point in the network. So, uh, you know, when when you think about sort of the MS-130 as an access layer switch, that's in the access layer closet often, but now with the MS-130R as well, anywhere a switch can go right mm -hmm. those outdoor those hot those cold and those tight use cases anywhere where you need to connect anything uh, it's really going to help round out the ability to leverage TrustSec sgts and adaptive policy anywhere in your environment fantastic and yeah bringing those networks to uh definitely more unstable environments and so brock i want to talk to you a little bit so it's my understanding that uh, you and at Nutrien are taking advantage of these new features, uh, the MS-130 and the MS-130R. So what does technology mean at Nutrien? Yeah, thanks, Tanner. So technology at Nutrien, it really is our, um, it's, no, it's no longer uh, merely enabling function. They've really become like technologies become a leading differentiating business function that is core to our overall company and and how we leverage um, the MS 130 uh, particularly or the features that we're excited about is um, really the ability to get more out of out of a, a, a a small package, if you will, that's what's exciting for us is a small compact switch that's cost effective that we can get more performance out, we can get more POE out of, um, and we can get um, uh, MGIG and, and more security features out of uh, this little tiny switch. And one of the components that's really interesting for us is that the rugged component in our, in our retail space specifically where we have some very challenging environments uh, to deploy in. We have over 2,000 uh, retail locations worldwide um, in Australia, South America, and North America, anywhere from the desert of Cal or California to uh, up in Saskatchewan, where I am, where it gets to minus 40 plus. <laughs> and we need to deploy some of these switches outdoors to enable our digital strategy at these retail locations, connecting things like Meraki outdoor access points or Meraki cameras or other digital solutions and enabling that end-to-end -end security. So 
Do you have any like specific examples or projects that you're working on that you can tell us about um, specifically where you're using our Meraki devices? Yeah, so we've been doing an expansion of, of connectivity to our retail locations in order to enable our uh, our agronomists to uh, help our growers and, and you know, simplify uh, delivery of our products by just enabling connecting connecting the workers, so providing beverage coverage at our locations. And that involves deploying outdoor access points, outdoor coverage, if you will, at those, at those locations. So previously, a cornerstone for us was deploying the MS120 series, uh, specifically the compacts, which into outbuildings and areas where we need to extend uh, network connectivity um, and leveraging the PoE capabilities to um, to power up the, the the backbone radios, the wireless links, and of course the wireless APs within within those facilities, including other devices. And in some cases, um, we had to get very creative, like pulling an MS120-8P switch out of its enclosure and putting it in a Hoffman box, like out of the steel metal enclosure, putting just the PCB inside of a Hoffman box so that we can mount it outside uh, to ensure that uh, it could fit in the small space that we needed and uh, we could get better cooling to it because there wasn't a ruggedized solution. And I'm um, looking forward to not having to do that and replacing them with an MS130R solution. So now just to make sure I understand I understood that correctly. So you used to take the MS120s, which were not ruggedized, and put them inside of this specific box so yeah, that like could kind of protect it? Like an outdoor enclosure, yeah. And uh, we would definitely uh, try and, uh, I mean, testament to the old hardware, but we'd try to push past the uh, <laughs> the, the the documented uh, capabilities of the switch. <laughs> and we're uh, somewhat successful in doing so, uh, but the peace of mind that comes with hardware that's actually designed and rated and tested for it is, is gonna be exciting. <laughs> to really kind of push in the boundaries there. Uh, so what have some of the unique challenges been around um, these devices? So I know you were also using the Meraki cameras and the Meraki APs in these environments as well. Yeah, so one of the key challenges there, um, and one of the first things we asked Brennan when we heard about the new switch was how much PoE do you got? Because uh, all those devices that you listed and, and uh, actually every device that we're going to plug into these switches are PoE enabled. Um, one, because it's convenient and and two, um, because it's an easy way to deliver power to some of the end devices, whether it's a temperature sensor, like a Meraki MT device uh, or a camera or an AP or others. Um, the uh, the unique challenge is ensuring that we have enough PoE budget in a small package and we don't overheat that package. Um, and um, that's one of the other things that like I mentioned we're really excited about with the MS-130 is the higher PoE budget on, on some of the uh, same form factor sizes. Um, and specifically like the PoE budget capabilities of the MS-130R are, are quite impressive and enable us to do some, some interesting things um, like deploy less A-port switches because I can have more all A ports uh, pushing the PoE that we need, um, as an example, and that just further reduces our costs, but also um, uh, reduces our space required and number of devices we have to we have to look after in the field. And so, where you you mentioned PoE, did all of these sites actually have power for you to plug into, or were some of the sites running on generators at all? Like. Uh, uh, so a lot of the sites uh, definitely had power in some of these locations. Uh, sometimes it was a challenge 
uh, to get power to where we needed to enable um, some connectivity. So uh, we've employed uh, solutions like uh, PoE extension, which just further add to your PoE budget. So that's like pushing PoE and Ethernet further out um, than like the 300 foot limit. Um, uh, but all those types of solutions and devices consume additional PoE power, um, which again, if your head device can't support that, um, makes it challenging. And having a device that can push more um, definitely helps again in that uh, in that cost effective package. Fantastic. And so, Brennan, what kind of environments uh, besides the one that Brock has already mentioned, um, are we looking to be able to deploy these ruggedized switches in? Oh, man. <clears throat> well, what Brock is maybe um, being, you know, uh, um, I'll say maybe underselling a little bit here is that um, <laughs> Brock's environments really cover all of the hot and cold and tight spaces that we mentioned earlier. Brock's and Nutrien really is covering probably some of the most diverse um, install, you know, base scenarios you can you can think of. And and what maybe um, isn't clear is that you know Brock and I both actually here live in in Saskatchewan, uh, otherwise known as the Silicon Valley of Canada, um, if if you. <laughs> Tanner, um, and it gets really cold here in Saskatchewan. Um, and I've been working with Brock for years. Um, and in my previous life, um, I ended up in a potash mine, actually in several potash mines over several years underground. So thousands of meters below the surface of the earth. And at the time, the first time this occurred in a, you know, in a pair of steel toe boots and a hard hat and a small oxygen tank on my hip, just in case, thankfully I never. <laughs> had to use it but just in case it was there um looking around going where did i take a wrong turn how did i get up here this is not the data center i thought i would be in when i got into networking um and so you know these you know when we started talking about iot all these years ago people started talking about connecting their toasters and their fridges to the internet and for us <laughs> iot was something very different Right, it was belts and programmable logic controllers and HMIs and high voltage systems, as well as um, these like mill operations that were full of um, um, brine tanks on the surface and loading train cars full of product and selling, you know, this fertilizer to um, at these retail locations that Brock is talking about. And so, like, it, it really runs the gamut from you know just something that's dirty because it's it's um you know where farmers are pulling in to load up product into um a, you know a truck or out of a green bin um to you know same thing you know very cold in the winter time where a train might be loading uh product um to underground to you know um gosh you know brock's got like you mentioned some uh, locations all around the world that are very hot as well and so that you know that extension really kind of is one of the things we talked about is um it's really hard to predict the type of use cases that we're that we are intending this product for it's really kind of a little bit of everything uh and so you know we had discussions about you know we need to make sure that the switch will cold start at 40 below but also still run poe at as hot of temperatures as possible and so there's just so many potential use cases um you know everything in between really is the answer yeah. and so and go ahead brock 
I was gonna say, and and designing a switch that'll work in some some interesting locations, like you said, Brennan. Like uh, it's not an office space. Um, we got dirty power. Uh, we got unique uh, install situations as well, um, and um, some some tough um, some tough uh, cabling or environmental considerations, especially around power, to just ensure that the device is gonna is gonna function properly with a with a dirty feed or whatever, right? And so, just for my understanding, the what is a dirty feed? Uh, like a like a, a bad a bad power, as an example, mm -hmm. or um, a non perfect sine wave uh, power from a from a uh, old crappy UPS, if you will, um, <laughs> <laughs> or brownout conditions, um, as an example. And those could be that could be very tough on equipment. Can you imagine being out in the middle of a field, you know, running off of a gas power generator and it tips over or, you know, somebody kicks mm -hmm. it or backs into it with a forklift. You know, these are all sorts of things that mean that the power you're going to your network devices are maybe not as stable as you would typically see in a data center. And I have I have definitely seen my share of dusty switches. Uh, dusty switches that weren't ruggedized, and so the the possibility of what this ruggedized device could stand up to is is very. It sounds very promising, and so, gosh, it just brings me back to uninstalling a switch from a a concrete cutting plant, and I came out of it covered in black greasy dust because it was so caked. But so. Now, this device is sealed against dust. You said hot, cold, and dust as well, right? Actually, the switch itself is not sealed at all. So it's an IP30 rated switch. Um, and this is one of the things that I learned actually from years ago at Nutri and um, especially with access points. So um, it was very common to deploy switches, but, you know, access points as well, uh, another small network device. And while um, we had lots of customers that would, uh, you know, invest in, say, these really industrialized wireless access points with the, um, like, you know, metal casing that were very highly ruggedized, we also found a lot of customers would rather spend less money on, um, uh, you know, like I say, a, a less highly ruggedized access point that was very likely to get run over or, or run into by a forklift or a Jeep and put in a $30 NEMA box and replace that NEMA box over and over again than replacing <laughs> the $1,000 AP over and over again. Um, and so again, this is part of that designing, you know, a switch that kind of, you know, it was versatile for many use cases. We made a conscious decision to not try really hard to build a ruggedized, or uh, sorry, an industrial switch, especially because like we work for a company, Cisco, that does an excellent job building really industrial equipment. That's not what we mm -hmm. were trying to set out to do. Um, so the MS-130R in particular is IP30 rated, um, which means, you know, it's, the holes are are small enough that you're not going to really stick a finger or a screwdriver in it, but it's not protected mm -hmm. against uh, like ingress from fluids or whatever. It is being ex expected to be protected in something like a NEMA box or a Hoffman box or right, or at least sheltered mm -hmm. um, out of direct contact from like rain or your hoses. Um, you know, so that it's more cost effective, um, but more um, versatile to be used in whatever environment is, is you know, necessary based on your use case. Mm -hmm. I think 
that's key too is those enclosures um one of the downsides of them of course the protection from liquids is it uh, reduces your airflow to the device and one of the key components is the extended temperature range uh, that the switch can operate in uh, which allows you to put it into one of these small uh, enclosures that further protect it but um, keep it in a small compact form it's not a giant you know air conditioned mm -hmm. or sealed rack on the side of a building right yeah so it can it can still work in the cold but as its enclosure starts to heat up it's still going to be able to work in that hotter environment or installed in already hot environments precisely yeah it's really about a lot of flexibility here it's it's about um, not trying too hard to, to pigeonhole the device into a particular use case so we went with kind of flexible powering options flexible mounting options um and so that really it could still be adapted to whatever use case was suiting people and then you know for the widest range of use cases, it was really focusing on that extended temperature range um, as well as the small form factor. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Brennan, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is a is a, a, a form of technology that just popped into my head. So I know that um, there is a push in agriculture to automated farming equipment. So is one of the intentions of this device, could it be to install it into uh, one of these, say, tractors or uh, mobile, the, the automated farming equipment and allow that to connect or have its own mini network inside to connect all the components? Is that oh, something man. that was considered? Uh yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the reasons that I reached out to Brock um, for having years of experience working in um, with, with Nutrien in particular, right, and here at home in Saskatchewan was um, that years ago, we started projects underground working on these, uh, you know, rather than tractors, boring machines. So the machines that actually dig potash ore out of an underground mine. Um, and we were adding network equipment onto these borers, right, to allow all sorts of, you know, metrics and measurements to be taken from, you know, what kind of rock was being dug up by these machines. And in the last decade or so, Nutrien has been at the forefront of leading um, all sorts of technological advances in those environments to the point now where they've demonstrated um uh recently you know the ability to actually now drive these boring machines completely autonomous or remotely i guess is the appropriate term so where when i started doing this work with nutrien there was still an operator sitting in that machine driving it mm -hmm. even though it was network connected to like the belts that it was you know dumping ore onto now um they're able to actually have operators sitting on the surface so thousands of meters away on you know, above ground driving these machines autonomously and they can actually see everything that that boring machine is doing so these kind of automated use cases are very um, applicable to the type of work that nutrien does now i'll let brock you know maybe um give some examples of where they might be intending to use the ms130 and 130r in particular but that is absolutely the type of like technology leadership that nutrien is known for yeah, I could definitely, I could definitely see that extending to uh, vehicles um, in different parts of the in, in, the industrial mine site. Um, um, 
And even uh, to you mentioned that the parallel with farm equipment, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of interesting use cases where farm machinery is becoming more network mm. connected. Um, we're seeing small switches show up on some on some tractors and, and wireless infrastructure, et cetera, to get analytical data from the seeding uh, implements behind the machinery um, or even uh, providing just, just basic network connectivity so you can offload um, uh, large amounts of data. So I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility similar to what we've done with boring machines or similar to what we've done um, with uh, uh, with telemote dozing as an bulldozing as an example um, with uh, with network infrastructure on the machine that it could be done um, on on farm equipment as well and uh, Rocky would be an interesting fit for that um, just from the cloud uh, managed nature of it and being able to uh, support that remotely from the from the machine from the equipment yeah, so getting these, taking these machines that are hundreds of meters underground and removing the human component from them, putting them in a different location and having them be able to manage that remote. So it sounds like it really also opens up the possibility of uh, safety, like it increases safety by not having to have someone on that machine at that time. Um, is, are there any other kind of interesting ways that um, Bringing connecting these devices has brought about safety. So in the in the mining use case, it's it's all about safety, but it's also about a, a connected worker and informing the worker. So um, ensuring that they have uh, the information that they need when they need it, whether that's safety information for um, knowing um access to mind maps or access to real-time data so they're always informed um uh to being able to make that emergency call out if required it's all enabled by that connectivity um that supports things like teleremote but um uh, just connected worker site-wide uh is an important story for um uh enhanced workflow and better safety mm -hmm. so not... to... oh go ahead we can extend that same thinking to to other uh, areas of the business, like um, like our retail business units as well. So not only just connecting machines, but also connecting those people and making sure that they are safe. And that is that's fantastic. It's it's something that I think a lot of people don't think about. Um, uh, there is a having people connected does increase safety in these kind of situations. Tanner, I love the yeah, I love the example Brock said about uh, mine maps. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to do work underground, you know, several times over the years, and uh, <laughs> I chuckled because if if you can imagine, you know, um, landmarks aren't a thing underground. <laughs> um, you know, travelways or or you know look a lot the same underneath the earth. Um, mm -hmm. And if you turn the lights out, you get lost really quick. I mean, even with the lights on, you can get lost very quickly. Um, the It's not like you can, the, it's not like San Francisco where I can look up and see, oh, there's Salesforce Tower. I need to go yeah, towards exactly. that and then to the right to get home or something like that. Exactly. Well, a lot of them look the same. It, it um, I chuckled because you know somebody had a sense of humor years ago. I remember seeing somebody who had um, taken a can of spray paint and 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 actually you know put uh, uh, a sort of makeshift traffic sign up on the wall underground, <laughs> saying you know that the the local town was this way. Um, of course, you couldn't get to it that way, but that was kind of the joke. These mines are huge, right? They you know tens of miles underneath the surface of the earth, and so things like as simple as being able to have a map 
map on an iPad or a or you know a handheld device um, underground make a big difference and to to not only you know time efficiency as well as safety like you said and safety has always been a huge focus um, in my experience at uh, at these you know sites. And so, you know, just just so that we actually cover it and and for my knowledge, because I have no idea what it is, uh, you said uh, these potash mines. Yeah, what so that... uh, well, Brock, you want to take that one? Uh, well, sorry, what's the question, Tanner, about the potash what, mines? What is a potash mine? I haven't actually heard of a potash mine before. Oh yeah, so a potash mine, uh, essentially a kilometer underneath the earth, we we mine uh, a potash and bring it to surface and refine it as a as a product. It's a fertilizer, uh, one of the many or one of the three main nutrients that the nutrient uh, produces: uh, potash, nitrogen, and phosphate as main inputs, crop inputs uh, that go into uh, go into the field and 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 are used by our growers. I'll take the opportunity, Tanner, to jump in here and point out that Brock and I are both Canadians, so we talk in metric. Uh, we talk in <laughs> kilometers and Celsius all the time. But uh, I'll also take a quick moment to plug Saskatchewan as, as you know, um, I mean, when I got into networking, I didn't realize that uh, Saskatchewan had the world's largest deposits of potash. And I had the same question, right? It was, what's potash? But it actually, it, it turns out that potash is, as Brock said, one of the main ingredients of fertilizer and is a super important um, um, ingredient for feeding the world, right? It's, you know, making crops grow worldwide. Um, so we produce and ship and sell tons, millions of tons of uh, fertilizer product around the world every year to make sure that uh, crops can grow to feed people all over the world. So it's a little bit of a claim to fame for um, our hometown of Saskatchewan, our home province, pardon me. Potash or um, potassium. It's it's potassium. Yeah. Very cool. I did not know that. I need to get to Saskatchewan. Brendan, I might come visit you. If you lick it, it's very salty. Come visit <laughs> us in January. <laughs> Show my what he's like. I no, I grew up in Wis I grew up in Wisconsin my whole life, so Canada adjacent. Uh, but I don't think we got as cold as you guys did. My last winter was negative sixty uh, before I moved here to San Francisco. But that would have been Fahrenheit. No, no, no that's Fahrenheit. Negative. Yes. That's still pretty cold. Like negative, yeah, it, negative forty is negative forty. Yeah, yeah. negative fifty <laughs> is cold, no matter which way you cut it. Um, but forty below is absolutely a thing here. Um, you know, and so is forty above is the crazy thing on the Celsius side, of course, which I think is, uh, gosh, I have no idea what that is in Fahrenheit, to be honest. But um, yeah, you know, and having network devices that can, you know, work at both ends is is kind of a novel concept, right? Um, you certainly don't want to swap out your cold switches with your hot switches every year. <laughs> so going back to getting all of those devices connected in the, in all of these different environments, one thing to keep in mind is the thing that we're talking about here is a Meraki device. So once again, you can still manage it all under that single pane of glass that we all know and love the Meraki dashboard. And so, yeah. oh. oh, go ahead, Brennan. 
Oh, just maybe Brock, you can give us an example. I mean, he, obviously you're here in Saskatchewan and Saskatoon. Um, what would you say is the number of devices you guys have in your Meraki dashboard and like how widely spread out are they? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, it specifically switches in our dashboard. We probably have a little over 4,000, 4, probably getting close to 5,000 devices in there. They're literally spread all over the world. Neutron operates in 14 countries around the world, uh, especially uh, in Australia, um, across Australia, South America, Argentina, Chile, um, North America, of course, and a little bit in Europe. Um, so we have... Um, quite a few devices, around 13,000 total Meraki devices, just spread all over the world in all these types of unique um, situations, whether urban, rural, or very rural, uh, to completely remote and and uh, um, uh, userless, if you will, um, unmanned sites. So you guys really mashed this kind of idea of the lean IT, remote, um, centralized mm -hmm. IT user that we talk about all the time um, as Meraki, <laughs> you know, the capability to see all the network uh, and and functionally um, in a in a day where we uh, strive to not put servers on sites, uh, really the the entire IT stack in one place uh, makes it very easy for us to troubleshoot and understand what's going on at that site, um, that that ecosystem, um, being able to to monitor the the network assets, have inputs from things like IoT sensors, Meraki IoT sensors to tell us about the quality of the power. Um, whether we have power or not, and cameras to tell us that you know um, is the is the is the door to the network cabinet open at this facility as well is very powerful. Um, but that end-to-end -end visibility and understanding of what our clients and assets are connected to the network has been huge um, in in managing a network this big and this um, and this spread out. Whether that's north, you know, or thousands of kilometers, you know, east, west, south, or straight down. Straight down, exactly. <laughs> there is a vertical component. And so, Brock, the um, you talked about managing all of these uh, devices and uh, all, all over the world. And I kind of want to do a quick callback to some previous episodes. Are you using the API at all? Absolutely, yeah. The API is uh, very important for us to to understand and um, uh, not only manage, help manage the infrastructure um, uh, outside of what's capable in the portal for like bulk deployments, as an example. As at one time uh, we didn't have Meraki, and then we had Meraki, uh, and so the API was very important to to onboard and get us get us through that transition. Uh, that was very key, um, uh, but. Uh, understanding our environment as we as we move forward. So um, analytics from our environment, uh, client information from our environment, and just understanding the assets we have in the field, like preparing for a refresh of MS 120s to 130s, uh, with uh, minimal um, um, impact on our on our IT force. Fantastic, making it making it easier to collect that data and manage everything. Uh, Back to that other episode, we certainly love API, but one more episode callback. Have you used the mobile app yet? <laughs> yeah, so the mobile app, um, uh, both good and bad. Um, so we've uh, definitely used the mobile app um, as we have Meraki cameras and sensors. There's a, there's a primary use case there for, for um, us as IT to use them, but also our facility staff that want to access um, some of these cameras as an example. But um, um, the the good of the app is the access to it at your fingertips 
but I find myself using the dashboard more because I'm looking for some of the more technical details. So a quick glance, the app is really good or onboarding a site um, and then uh, and then move from there to the to the dashboard. Um, one of the things though at our scale with having um, with having close to 20, 23, 20, 2500 uh, retail or uh, Meraki, sites networks um is having them all load up in the app and uh and it but it keeps getting better awesome good to hear that and so i want to go back uh a little bit we talked about um adaptive policy now um on my team the mx team obviously we work on the firewalls so we uh focus on security a little bit now uh, Brennan, it's my understanding that adaptive policy on the switch is also going to bring um, a little bit of security. And it's my understanding you have some things you wanted to talk about about that. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, Brock, what you guys are looking forward to here. I know um, we don't have adaptive policy on the new MS-130s, you know, yet, but it really is going to be an important part of this journey to bring um, adaptive policy to more broadly, you know, Cisco's TrustSec and SGT tagging architecture to the LAN again, you know, with the MS-130R really wherever those switches are and i'd love to hear from your perspective you know what you know security it means for nutrient but as well as like you know um your interest in using um technologies like sgts to you know do micro segmentation or whatever or what have you in your networks yeah so uh security um like safety is core of what of everything we do here at nutrient and uh, for us it's important that um we have a uh a network asset um, in this in this um, cost competitive um, area, like the MS100 series, that has the ability to to deliver a feature set with the hardware on board, like like adaptive policy. Um, so, as a as a customer of of Industry is also a customer of the Catalyst line, of course, um, and having that feature set on a very um, on a from a, a very big and 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 campus type switch on such a small or or budget focused switch, if you will, um, that we put in the field allows us to in the future envision um, capabilities like micro segmentation um, um, or um, department or business unit segmentation in ways that we haven't been able to before, and that really could enhance the capabilities that we could deliver with uh, IoT as an example in the field. Um, IoT is just going to continue to be something that we have to support and and allow. On the network or service with the network uh, more importantly because uh, it's there we want to ensure that we can offer the connectivity in a, in a cost effective uh, manner and uh, being able to do so safely and securely um, that's that's what we envision with adaptive policy in the future but most importantly is having that cohesive security posture across all of our facilities whether it's meraki wireless catalyst wireless meraki switching catalyst switching um, it can all be centralized and nice that's a really good call out, right? Because Nutrien isn't solely a Meraki customer by any means or by any, you know, long shot, True. right? You're a, a very maybe mixed environment is a safe way to say it. And certainly Cisco is a big part of that as well. So the ability to have security um, architectures that play nicely across, you know, both Meraki and Cisco is going to be important for you, I'm sure. Absolutely. That consistent, that consistent posture delivered across um, the entire product portfolio is, is going to be key. Um, and something that we're really looking forward to um, extending the capabilities that have already existed, um, but taking it to a new level with some more advanced security features. 
And I should be careful to make sure we're not promising too much too fast. Again, adaptive policy mm -hmm. is not something available in the MS-130 today, but it, we're working hard to bring it, you know, as quickly as possible. Knowing, again, like Barack has said, that um, it, it really, you know, is going to be necessary to kind of complete the picture. Now, um, Tanner, I know you guys are working on MX. I know this too. You guys are passing um, SDT mm -hmm. tags now through the MX, you know, or the MR access points um, are passing and enforcing SDT tags as well. So this is kind of like, a lovely place to be in, right? To start to see these architectures come together and watch how um, customers like Neutrino are going to be able to, you know, leverage these things to do really cool things. And I always love hearing about how, like you said, I love hearing about how customers are utilizing our devices because there's some cool ways uh, that they're utilizing them. And the fact that we keep expanding, um, like with MT, MV, um, as we continue to expand into IoT, fantastic to continue to see that. But, gentlemen, I think that brings us to the end of our episode today. So, all of the listeners out there, definitely give the MS-130 a look. Looking at bringing in uh, MGIG into your environments, look at the MS-130R to introduce uh, a network component into those more hostile, uh, hot or cold environments. It's hostile to technology and just unpleasant to all of the people out there. Uh, definitely take a look. We'll definitely include some links in the description, in the bio, in links below, depending on what platform you're looking at. Uh, but take a look and take a look at Brennan's handiwork and Brennan's team's handiwork. And uh, maybe you can use it in a way that Brock and Nutrien are using it. So, Brock, Brennan, thank you once again for joining us. And to all of you listeners out there, thanks for listening and have a good rest of your day.